Right, Genesis chapter 9, we'll be picking it up in verse 18 and read through verse 29, the end of that chapter. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backwards, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children say, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up this portion of Scripture to us, that we might see what redemptive truths are there, that we might indeed see the work of Christ and the gospel therein. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. So this morning, as I have prayed, I want to share with us a number of things from this section of Scripture. I want to share some of the obvious portions of it, and then I want to share with us uh, what redemptive points the Lord has placed in there and that he has given us grace to see. So I want to remind us about Noah. It says in chapter 6 that he had found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It describes Noah as a just man and perfect in his generations, and it says that Noah walked with God. It's all from chapter 6, verse 8 and 9, and we should appreciate that Noah is a Christian. He typifies the regenerated Christian, and after regeneration, we still, uh, we still struggle. We still have issues with our sins. So I want us to appreciate that Noah is a Christian, and uh, he's every bit as righteous as you and I are, having been regenerated by God. By imputation, all Christians are as righteous as God is. God has imputed his righteousness to us, so we can be no more righteous than we are presently. Um, there will come a time when we put off the flesh, and we'll get to that later. So it says here uh, in the narrative, we can appreciate that Noah lived 600 years before the flood, and, Noah, and God summarizes Noah's life up to that point by saying that he built the ark to the savings of his family and all the kinds of animals that were air-breathing animals, all the families of animals. After the flood, we know from the math, that he lived 350 years. And what are we told about him? That he was drunk in his tent, and his son Ham committed a grave indiscretion for which his son Canaan was cursed. Now, surely there's more to that story than meets the eye. We know it says in Romans 15:4, says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patient and and comfort of scriptures might have hope. So we'll start with the easy fruit. We'll start with the easy part by way of application, for which I will say to you, it is not a good idea to drink to excess. It's not a good idea to get drunk. And where that line is when you've had too much to drink 
You don't know where that is except for the people around you who are not drinking. They know where that line is in you because they can see a change in your behavior. Um, the more you drink, you can appreciate that you have lost your sense of objectivity regarding your own consumption and your own behavior. Now, in this small church here, there are a number of families that have suffered the ill effects of alcoholism. I can think of a number, including my own, that have suffered the ill effects of alcoholism. And the people that uh, were the alcoholics, um, quite frankly, they died early. Bottom line, they died early and they made a mess of their lives and a mess of their families. Alcohol, chemically, is a poison, and it destroys health. Its inebriating effects cloud judgment, it dulls the intellect, it confuses the emotions, and it desensitizes the flesh. What does Scripture have to say about it? Well, there's a couple of Proverbs which are interesting. First one I want to read is Proverbs 23:29. Proverbs 23:29 is speaking of somebody who's drinking to the point of excess. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? And he's going to answer the question. Verse 30. They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. Look not, look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup when it moveth itself all right. What he's saying here is it has a very attractive color. It's appealing to the eye. If you've watched any sports um, programs, you'll watch those beer commercials, and when they pour that beer into that cup, it really looks nice with the caramel color. He's saying the same thing here about wine. It looks really nice in the cup, and so part of the attraction is its um, emeraldic uh, cover, and it moves itself all right when it slips right down the throat because you've already had enough to drink to loosen up your judgment. Verse 32, At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. How many college students have gotten themselves into trouble due to sexual, sexual liaisons that are the result of drinking too much? A lot of them have. Verse 34, Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. Anybody that's gotten drunk knows what it feels like to have the ground move underneath you, just like the deck of a ship, and if you're up on the mast, it moves even more. Verse 35, They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I wake? I will Seek it yet again. And so it is with a person taken by alcohol. They will suffer all these things, suffer the loss and destruction of their careers and their families, and they will yet seek it again. In Proverbs 21, 20.1, it says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. No one is immune to the effects of alcohol. It is deceptive. An initial sense of well-being masks the affection, uh, the aff affectation of it, and it encourages additional consumption. For some, it is addictive to the flesh. It will consume the alcoholic and destroy loving relationships unless God mercifully intervenes. Now, having said that, the Bible gives us warnings about it, but then we can appreciate that Jesus did turn water into wine at the wedding of Canaan. And so we appreciate that there is no scriptural prohibition against drinking. It is indeed the fruit of the vine. 
Christians are at liberty to eat and drink whatever they choose to. Salvation is not related to it. However, I want us to, with respect to alcoholism or drinking, guard yourself against legalism or any inclination towards works-based religion. So take the prohibitions at some place on alcohol and lump it into legalism and realize that it does not apply to you and your salvation. We are at liberty. In Colossians 2, 20 to 22, the Lord tells us about this liberty we have. He says, Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? In other words, you don't let people impress these prohibitions on you. Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are to perish with the using. All these things perish, but we, of course, are eternal. In Galatians 5.13, again, we read, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. In other words, we can eat and drink and do whatever we want on any day of the week that we want. He says, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Don't let your liberty that we have in Christ be an excuse to go out and consume things on the lust of our flesh. He says, but by love, serve one another. And so, without using um, drinking as an excuse to the flesh, or without using this liberty as an excuse to consume things upon our flesh, we should also be careful that due to love of our neighbor, we would not consume something in front of them that would cause them to stumble. So if you have a relative that's um, an alcoholic or struggles with drink, you're not about to set a glass of wine in front of them. You don't want them to struggle, and you don't want them to stumble in sin. So we would not do that. Now, with respect to the qualifications for elders and deacons, uh, people involved in church leadership and influence, the Lord says that it, they should not be given to much wine. So that's the easy fruit to pick. So in the context of our narrative here in Genesis chapter 9, you ever not to drink to the point where you are unaware of what is going on around you. And that says here clearly that, verse 24, Noah woke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. He was drunk to the point where he didn't know what was going on around him. Now, the Lord tells us that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we would all do it to the glory of God. Read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, and also the Lord talks about that in chapters 8 and 10 of uh, 1 Corinthians. Now, every family has its troubles and issues, and Noah's is no different. Noah, like the rest of us, is his own worst enemy. In Romans 7:18, the Lord helps us to appreciate that although we are regenerated, sin still dwells in the flesh. He says, For I know that in me, that is in my the flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but to how to perform that which is good, I find not. Sin dwells within us, and Noah is being regenerated. He still has his flesh. So as a Christian, as one who is indwelled by the Holy Ghost, and one who is a partaker of the divine nature, we, like Noah, will always struggle with the sin that resides in the flesh. In Galatians 5.17, the Lord summarizes quite uh, nicely for us. He says, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. And again, Romans chapter 7 helps us appreciate that struggle. I do things that I don't want to do, and I don't do things that I do want to do, because that is sin that is in my flesh. Now, Scripture tells us that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So, in a sarcastic sense, I can say that Noah took too much baggage on the ark when he boarded it. 
In other words, he should have left his flesh behind, but he couldn't do that, and we can't do it either. We will carry our flesh with us until such time as we go into the grave and the Lord calls us home to glory. Until that time, we will struggle with fleshly lusts which war against the soul. That's from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Fleshly lusts, fleshy lusts which war against the soul. So moving forward in the scripture here, we, shouldn't, uh, we should appreciate what we read in verse 29, that Noah lived 950 years and then he died. So 350 years after the flood, this is all that the Lord tells us about what went on in his life here. So obviously the Lord is trying to teach us something about um, himself and about redemptive truths. Again, Romans 15:4. whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our patience and for our learning that we through patience and comfort might have hope. Well, might have hope in what? What will we learn from this? That maybe we shouldn't drink, that the bottle is not the solution to life's problems, and that Christ is. Well, that would be a good lesson to learn, and that is true. Our hope is in Christ and in nothing else. So let's look at the redemptive truths that we might find here so that we might hope in Christ. For the Lord says in Psalm 47, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. That's the Lord speaking. And then in John 5, 39, when he's in, in, um, in flesh, speaking to the people, he says of himself, Search the scriptures, for in them you think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So as we move through this section of scripture, by God's grace, I pray that we will see the gospel manifest in the different characters and the things that takes place in terms of their interactions. And I want to share with us, as I sometimes do, that all shadows and types in the Bible fall short of the reality of the things that Christ accomplished. They fall uh, short of the reality of the Godhead. We're going to see multiple people in here that do a portion of what God did in terms of redeeming a people unto himself. When you look at shadows, the shadow that you cast is a function of the position of the light. And so you can look at scriptures in different ways to see different attributes and characteristics and accomplishments of Christ. In Proverbs 25, 2, the Lord says, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search a matter out. Well, what has the Lord concealed in the scripture? He's concealed Christ. And we are kings in Christ. And therefore, it is an honor of us to be able to search Christ out in the Scriptures. Because absent the light of Christ, we cannot see the light of Christ. So Christ is hid in the Scriptures. And again, it is truly an honor for us to be able to search him out. Now, when you look at the narrative here, does it not seem strange to you that Ham sees his father's nakedness and Canaan is cursed? What did Canaan have to do with what took place in that tent? And yet he's mentioned five times in this portion of scriptures. Clearly the Lord wants to draw our attention to, this, um, to Canaan in particular and what things happened here. Canaan did not see what took place in the tent. He wasn't told about it. It says that Ham told his brethren. It doesn't say he went out and told his son. Canaan had nothing to do with it. And yet he, as an innocent son, is cursed because of the sins of others. Canaan, Canaan an, interest, an innocent son, is cursed because of the sins of others. Does that not sound familiar to us in terms of the gospel? 
Galatians 3.13, that Christ, God's Son, was made a curse for us. So though Christ Jesus knew no sin, did no sin, and in him was no sin, nevertheless, he was cursed because of our sin. So before I go any further, I want to remind us that it's been a little time since the flood before this event took place. Canaan is the fourth son of Ham. So there was time for Noah's family uh, and Ham's family to grow. He's the fourth son. It says in verse 20 that Noah began to be a husbandman. So there was time for him to plant. There was time to water. There was time for it to grow. There was time for a harvest. And there was time for fermentation. And there was time for him to imbibe. Ecclesiastes 5.18 says, Behold that which I have seen. It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. In other words, it's good for you to spend some time and reflect upon the blessings you have from God and to enjoy the fruits of your labor. It's good to go on on a vacation. It's good to sit in your backyard and think about all the things that you have and just rest in the blessings that God has given you. We read in Psalm 104, verse 15, with respect to wine, it says in Psalm 104, 15, and wine that maketh glad the heart of man. So wine makes the heart of man glad, which is one of the reasons we can appreciate why the Lord at the wedding of Canaan turned water into the best of wine, because it was an illusion for the gathering together of the saints in glory for that celestial um, wedding where we will be uh, united, where the consummation of all of our salvation will be complete. In Proverbs 19.14, it says that a prudent wife is of the Lord. So a good wife is a gift from God. So we should appreciate in the context here that Noah is enjoying, what he's enjoying are the gifts from God. He's enjoying his wife, and he's enjoying the fruits of his vineyard. He is alone with his wife, that's the woman with whom he is one flesh with, in his tent, and he's drinking of the fruit of the field in the privacy of his tent, during which Ham goes into the tent, sees the nakedness of his father, and tells his two brethren without. So Noah drinks to excess, which results in sin in Ham, and produces grace in Shem and Japheth. Now, Romans 8, 28, again, a wonderful overriding principle. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Qualifying statement, everything that happens on this planet, whether it appears to be good, whether it appears to be evil to us, works for the collective good of the saints. It all works for our good, those that love God. Romans 5.20 says, But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So we see that principle applied here too. The sin results in one curse and two blessings. So grace did much more abound um, because of the sin. Ask yourselves, where would we be if Adam had not sinned or anyone had sinned according to his similitude? Where would we be? We would have a very different relationship with God that we have now. It would be a plutonic relationship. While it might be close in a superficial sense, um, and we might be in agreement, at least uh, intellectually, and we might have some unity of mind, there would be no unity of heart. There would be no unity of spirit. It would be a relationship lacking true unity. The very best 
relationship that we could hope for would be the relationship that the disciples had before God filled them with the Holy Spirit. You saw how fickle they, they could be, even though they uh, professed that they loved the Lord, they abandoned him at the cross. So they did not enjoy true love, agape love, that would come by the um, fruits of the Spirit. They had no real understanding of who Jesus was. On one hand, they would profess something, and then on the next hand, they would do the opposite as though they did not understand what God had revealed to them. So where are we now? We are united with, and we are one with Christ Jesus. We are in unity with the Godhead, with God Almighty. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, indwelled by Christ, and, and indwelled, therefore, with the Father, since Christ the Holy Spirit and God the Father are all united in one, and we are in Christ and He is in us. We are united with the Godhead. We are partakers of the divine nature, having received the seal of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we are eternally secure in Him. Our body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in us. We are new creatures. All things are passed away. All things are become new. And we sit in heavenly places and reign with Christ. So just as all of these wonderful blessings sprang forth from Adam's transgression, so too do we see blessings come out of Ham's grievous indiscretion here. In verse 22, we read that Ham sees his father's nakedness. Ham saw the nakedness of his father. So what does that mean? Well, Noah was uncovered and probably was lying with his wife, endeavoring to be fruitful and multiply, and Ham sees his father's nakedness. I mean, that's an easy understanding of what is there. So uh, the next question is, what is the nakedness of Noah? What is the nakedness of Noah? The textbook answer is the nakedness of the man is the woman. The nakedness of the man is the woman. I'm going to read you three verses or four verses from Leviticus, um, which will help us appreciate this. In Leviticus chapter 18, the Lord sets this before us. In verses 7 of 8 of Leviticus 18, it says, The nakedness of thy father or the nakedness of thy mother shalt thou not uncover. She is thy mother, thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. Ham did this very thing. Verse 8 says, The nakedness of thy father's wife shalt thou not uncover. It is thy father's nakedness. I'll read verse 8 again. The nakedness of thy father's wife shall thou not uncover. It is thy father's nakedness. In Leviticus 18.10, it says, The nakedness of thy son's daughter, or of thy daughter's daughter, even their nakedness thou shalt not uncover. For theirs is thine own nakedness. So, in other words, the nakedness of your granddaughter is your own nakedness. Now, in verse 16 of Leviticus 18, it says, Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy brother's wife. It is thy brother's nakedness. So again, it's back to the male. In each case here, what is manifest in these relationships is the nakedness of the father or yourself or your brother. That's what the true nakedness is when you're uncovering the nakedness of the woman. <laughs> to lie with or to have sex with these women is to uncover her nakedness, which is the nakedness of the male here. So it takes it further. It's about, having, uh, it's about committing fornication. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11, it says... And the man that lieth with his father's wife hath uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their bl um, blood shall be upon them. Verse 20 of Leviticus 20. And if a man shall lie with his uncle's wife, he hath uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. 
verse 21 of Leviticus 20, and if a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He hath uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. So again here, to lie with her, to have sex with the woman, is to uncover her nakedness, which in context here is the nakedness of the man. So the important point to take from this and to bring into Genesis chapter 9 is this. Ham does not uncover his father's nakedness. He does not uncover his father's nakedness. He saw it. So there was no fornication involved here. He didn't lie with anybody, and people try to read all sorts of interesting things into this, but it, he did not uncover it. He simply saw it. What he did was to look upon his father's wife. He looked upon his father's wife. So here we move into the gospel lesson of what is set before us here and why we should appreciate that this indiscretion is recorded for our patience, for our learning that we might have hope in Christ. Since the fall, shame or awareness of nakedness typifies sin. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, it says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. They don't know that they're naked. There's no shame between them. This is before the fall. Then when we go over to Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 through 10, and it speaks after the fall, it says, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves apron. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. In other words, he's suffering shame now. And the Lord's going to ask him, who told you you were naked? Well, he felt it in his heart, shame due to sin. So in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3, we read that, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothed them, so what does the Lord do? He covers their shame. He covers their sin through this, uh, by killing an animal. Now, to help us appreciate this relationship between shame and sin and being covered, in Revelation 16, 15, the Lord says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So what the Lord did in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, we should appreciate that our sin is covered by the blood of Christ. So here we have Noah uncovered with his wife in the tent. And the Lord tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, when it comes to the husband and the wife here, he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and his church. So what we have before us, between a husband and a wife, we should uh, help, uh, help us understand it and interpret the gospel in it is the relationship between Christ and his church. Noah, the husbandman, he's identified as the husbandman here, is enjoying the blessings of the Lord. John chapter 15, 1, Jesus says, My father is the husbandman. And we know that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, that it was the Lord who planted the garden eastward and in Eden. So we see Lord, the Lord acting as a literal husbandman in the Bible in so much as he plants a garden. And again, just like I'd read earlier, applying it to what Noah was doing, it applies to the Lord as well. It is good and proper to enjoy the fruits of your labor. 
Behold, that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun and all his days which God giveth him, for it is his portion. And again, a prudent wife is of the Lord. I hope you can take this, what's written here, in the context of a human relationship and how we might spend our time and appreciate what God has given us and apply that to the Lord in terms of what his God the Father has given him and what he should do and how she should enjoy the fruits of his labors. So, Noah's in his tent, enjoying the fruits of his labor and what gifts the Lord has given him. Scripture says that one plants, one waters, but God giveth the increase. And then in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Lord says, We are God's husbandry. We are God's husbandry. We should appreciate that we are the fruits of the field. Man was taken out of the earth. It would be prudent for God to enjoy the fruits of his labor. And Isaiah here, and Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, we should appreciate the parallels now that we see between Noah and God and Shem and Japheth and Canaan. In verse 22 of Isaiah chapter 40, the Lord says, It is he, that would be God, that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, speaking of God, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. So God has made this creation that we live in, this earth, as though it was inside of a tent. So he stretches out the heavens like a heaven, and he has gone in to that tent to enjoy the fruits of the field, which is man, again, which was taken from the earth. We are God's husbandry. We are the fruits of his field. So, as I said a moment ago, that Ham did not uncover his father's nakedness. He saw it. So as God sits upon the circle of the earth and he looks down on the earth, what does he see? He sees the nakedness of man. He sees the nakedness of man. In Psalm 14, verse 2 and 3, it says, And the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Now, the Lord literally came into the tent when he went into the Garden of Eden, and he saw the nakedness of of, of his bride. Hebrew 4.13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So, Garden of Eden, God planted it, God fellowshiped with man there, pulled man out of the, out of the earth, fellowshiped with man there, and he saw man's sin or nakedness there. And then he covered man's sin there in an offering typified by what his son would do. So, God saw the nakedness of man, and then he made an offering that would cover the sins of man, which typified what his son, Christ, would do. So, when Shem and Japheth hear about the nakedness, they don't see it, they only hear about it, they cover up their father's wife, which is their mother, which is the nakedness of their father, just as God, through Christ, covers the nakedness of his wife, which is the church. And what Christ did and what God did is an example of great love. In 1 Peter 4, 8, the Lord tells us, And above all things, fervent charity amongst yourselves, for charity, which is love, for charity, shall cover the multitudes of sin, the multitude of sin. So because of Ham's sin, we see love manifest in the two brothers, for they do that which is not natural, they walk backwards as though walking by faith and not by sight, and then they cover the nakedness of their father. 
It was because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and giving his son covered us with our, covered our sins with the blood of Christ. He gave us the garments of salvation, Scripture says, and the robe of righteousness. And so we are covered with Christ. God covers us with Christ. Our nakedness is covered. Romans 4, 7 says, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Isaiah 61 10 says, My soul shall rejoice, my soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. And this is symbolized at the cross. You'll recall that when Jesus was crucified, that they parted his garments. And by lot, they cast lots for the garment that had no seam in it, and that went to one particular person. So it was a picture. God was showing us pictorially what he has done to us spiritually. He clothed one of those men there. Um, just like he clothes all of his elect. We are clothed by Christ. In Revelation 19.8, it says, And to her, that would be the bride, was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And again, where does that righteousness come from? It came from Christ when God imputed his righteousness to us. And so here we see, how does this play itself out? Well, the next thing we see in our narrative is that the Son is cursed. Canaan, who's the son here, typifying Christ, is cursed. He had nothing to do with what took place. He is innocent, and yet he bears the curse because of what was done there. He knew no sin, he did no sin, and in him was no sin. Outwardly, I'm speaking, of course, and yet he becomes a curse. Christ became a curse for us, as I had read earlier from Galatians 3.13, that he was made a curse, for cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. So Canaan, like Christ here, as we continue to read through this about what the Lord said, or Noah would said, would take place, is he becomes a servant of servants, as did Christ, the Son of God, became a servant of servant. We who serve God were served by Christ, and indeed we are blessed by his service. And Philippians 2.7 tells us that he made himself of no reputation and then took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. In fulfillment, in the literal fulfillment of what is set before us here, you have to go through the table of nations in chapter 10 to appreciate that the um, Gibeonites, uh, which are of the Hivites, Hittites, excuse me, which are the sons of Canaan, become hewers of wood and drawers of water in the tabernacle of God. You can read about that in Joshua chapter 9, um, verse 27. So the sons of Canaan several generations down, become hewers of wood and drawers of water for use in the tabernacle of God. It was the Canaanites that were in the, quote, promised lands first, having gone ahead of the Israelites, which are from Shem, and prepared a place for their brethren. Now, in Deuteronomy, when the Lord is setting this all out before them, he tells his people, he says, And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he swear unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities, which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things, which thou fillest not, and wed wells digged, which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees, which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. In Joshua 24, 13, the Lord says, And I have given you a land for which ye did not labor, 
and cities which ye built not, and ye dwelt in them, and of vineyards and olive yards which ye planted not, do ye eat? So the question is, who built all those cities, who filled those houses with good things, who dug those wells, and who planted those vineyards? It was the Canaanites whom God said would be Shem's servant. So the Lord literally fulfills the prophecy here by sending the Canaanites ahead to subdue the land, to build all these cities for which the Israelites just walked in and possessed. In like manner, Christ, the Son of God, has prepared everything for us in glory when he went to the cross. John 14, 2, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Well, he went to the cross to prepare a place for us. So from our perspective, when we go to glory, it's a turnkey operation, except that we don't even have to turn a key. Everything is done for us. Jesus Christ has served us in every way conceivable to set before us eternal glory by doing everything for us. That we can pull from the scripture here in terms of the redemptive um, and the gospel principles that we see. In verse 26, we read, quote, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. I'm back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 26. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. For indeed, God will be blessed through the line of Shem. From Shem shall come Christ and a redeemed people that will be in the image and likeness of his son Jesus. These are a people with which he shall enjoy eternal fellowship and love with. In verse 27, we read that God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Well, the Gentile nations come from Japheth, so he has been enlarged. His borders were enlarged, and then so much that they've gone out and covered the whole world. And we, through the... Um, well, through the rejection of the Israelites of the gospel, the Lord then pours out the gospel on the Gentiles, and then we then come into the tent or tabernacle of Shem, which is an allusion to coming into Christ, to coming into the temple of God. To dwell in the temple or the tabernacle or the tent of Shem is to dwell with God. Our deacon read for us Psalm 23. I'll read verse 6 again. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So indeed, the Gentiles, through this prophecy, have come into Christ and dwell in the house of the Lord. Um, the Lord himself, Psalm 90, verse 1, the Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. And so is the um, um, appreciation of all those in Christ. Now, all of this we enjoy, all of these blessings we enjoy because someone else has sinned. And where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. So as we've looked at this section this morning, while we've pulled out some principles by which we can conduct ourselves on a daily basis, the important thing is that we would see the gospel in here. Clearly the Lord didn't set this before us here, so we would, like I say, um, um, not... Um, consume things on the lust of our flesh, but rather we would appreciate the things that Christ has done on our behalf. He has done everything that is required for us. Um, when our nakedness, when, when our sin was seen, that was indicative of his nakedness in so much as our sin was imputed to Christ. And God um, cursed his son, who was innocent, and that we might enjoy the uh, righteousness of God in him. He covered us with the blood of Christ. Um, so with that, I will say amen. amen.